Please be seated. Well, we have been working on messages on prayer. Uh, if you haven't been to uh, the first two, this is the third in, in that series. And I will say again what I have said before. This is one of those things that I approach with fear and trembling. Uh, this is not one of the things that I do well. And so the Lord is speaking to me every day as I'm studying and preparing and hoping that he will speak to you as well. So often we tend to want to pray because somebody told us to. You should pray. Or in my case, I should pray. I should pray more. Well, those are words of law, and they're usually not very helpful for me. It is the gospel that helps, and it, is, it changes us. And um, finding the gospel of prayer is really one of the, the most important objectives that we can have. I, I was reading in a book called The Sermon on the Mount, of all things, since this actually is part of that. Uh, it was written by uh, a guy by the name of Sinclair Ferguson, and uh, one of the things that I got, I, I've actually paraphrased it a little bit. I, I wasn't that crazy about the way he said it, but it, was, it brought a very compelling thought. And it says, the single most important influence in our lives is what we believe about God. That's the Paul Lang paraphrase. Um, I, I did cite him, so I'll, I'll mention his name. But I want to say that again, the single most important influence in our lives is what we believe about God. What we believe about God has a huge impact on almost everything. It influences the rest of our belief system. We may not like it, we may not agree with it, but the fact is what I believe about God is the primary belief in my belief system. It influences how we spend our time. You're here. Could have been sleeping, mowing the lawn, could have been all those kind of things. So it influences what we think about God, influences what we do, who we spend our time with, and a lot of what we do. And those influences can be very positive. Um, in fact, I would say that if what we're believing about God is influencing who we are, then it is all good. This is the essence of theology. Oh, there, that's a word, right? The essence of theology is this, that we are all theologians. You might be thinking, whoa, wait a minute, I'm not a pastor, I've never been to seminary, but the fact is, seminary is not what makes a theologian. It, was, it is what trained me to get ready to minister. And it's not the ministry that makes me a theologian. Everybody is a theologian because everybody has a belief 
about God. Even if someone believes there is no God, that is a theology. So, welcome to the club, theologians. It's a wonderful place to be, thinking about God. In Faith Foundations, we teach that it is the study of God and his work. Same thing. The whole idea is to bring young people to a place where their theology, what they're, what they're believing about God, is biblical. That's our whole plan. We all believe something about God. So the next um, little petition, it's called, little prayer in the master prayer that Jesus taught his disciples is in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 11. So does somebody have the page number of that? You always have that. 811. Okay, so um, my little version of the scriptures in here does not have page numbers. Um, so let's read that together. Um, we're just doing two verses today, short sermon, right? Maybe. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Give us this day our daily bread. So, this is the interactive portion of the service. I don't always do this, but what is our daily bread? Provisions. Bread's one of them. Right? What else? What? His word, sure. It is everything that we need to live. Shelter, health, money, job, not just to make money, but also to work. You know, in the garden, Adam and Eve, they were created perfect. They were created to last forever, but then they sinned and then they didn't last forever. But one of the first things that God did was give them a job. Work the garden. Now, my wife would love it there. Not me. If it was work on cars or play the guitar, yeah, I'm all in. So I wouldn't have fit in back there. Of course, I'm a sinful man, so that wouldn't work either. You see, our daily bread is everything that we need to live. So here's my first question. Second question. We already answered the first one. Do you believe God is a giving God? Some of you are undecided. Okay. Yes, I, that would be my belief. So do you believe him when he will say, he, later on in this chapter, he says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall I eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Do you believe that? What about when the money is short, and the, the month is longer than your bank, bank account? What about when food is short? Do you still believe that he is a giving God? 
Give us our daily bread. That is a prayer of faith. It is relationship. Believing that God is a giving God beyond whatever my circumstances are. Most of the time when I've been broke in my life, it was because of me and not because of him and not because of anybody else either. But there is more. Much more. Somebody said that part of my daily bread is his word. And um, I want to read this little bit here from John chapter 6. This actually happened the day after Jesus fed the 5,000. Probably remember that in, uh, in your Bible reading or other ministry. And the fact is it was 5,000 men, which meant that there were probably 15,000 or more people there at the time. Sometimes they call it, count people, sometimes they count men. There are reasons for that, and if you really want to know, you can ask me later. Uh, and and uh, they, the, the, the crowds had followed him, and they were interrogating him, you know? We want more, more bread, more bread. And so he said to them in John 6, 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Life to the world. We're not talking about a free lunch that 15,000 or so people got the day before. That was to set this up. So often, the miracles were to set up people to believe who were formerly not believing. And it was to set up this message. This message of, uh, they, he goes on to say, well, they said, sir, give us this bread always. They're still thinking free lunch. And then he went on to say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. That's the real bread. The real bread. He knows we need the whole the things that we're going to eat. We just read that. He knows we need stuff to put on to cover ourselves up, especially in the winter. Um, he knows that we need to drink good water. But Jesus is the bread of life. And he's not talking about the horizontal earthly life. He's talking about eternal life with himself and his Father in his kingdom. Jesus is the bread, and I pray this day, Lord, give me this bread every day. Give me my daily Jesus every day. The next little prayer, part of the seven in the Master Prayer, we call it the Lord's Prayer. Uh, that's rather unfortunate. I think the Lord taught it, but he didn't teach it to, to pray these exact words. He started out by saying, pray like this. It's a guide to how to pray. And then he broke it down into seven little prayers. Theologians call them petitions. That always makes me think of signatures on a piece of paper. That's not it. Okay, so you theologians, we're all theologians, so maybe you were thinking that or maybe not. Do you believe 
that God is a forgiving God. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. A forgiving God. The Greek word there, the original language for forgive, it means to dismiss, remove, and send away. As in, as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That is a long way. In fact, part of what's packed into that word for forgive is to remove, send away, so that it will never be found again. This is our prayer for forgiveness, so that it will never be found again. Earlier we read a passage from um, Matthew 9, I think it is, the healing of the paralyzed man. And um, Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven. Do you believe that? Did he do anything for that? Did he even ask for that? No. You see, it is Jesus who looks into our hearts and he sees our need. And he says, forgiven. And that's when the trouble starts for a lot of people. No, nope, no, nope, don't need that. I'm good enough. I've known a lot of people, my father, one of them. I don't need that. God will take me in the way I am, a good guy. And he was. I learned a lot of great things from him, but not about Jesus. So do you really believe that God is a forgiving God? Really? Everything? You know, I can remember a time, and I don't know if you've had this experience, um, when I was guilty of some whoppers, big sins, serious And even today, years, decades later, if I start thinking about them again, the regret and the guilt starts sneaking back into me. So did God forgive? When those things happen, I have to work a little bit more on what do I really believe about a forgiving God. Is it altogether forgiveness? Has it been removed as far as the east is from the west? Has he removed my sins so that they will never be found again? And isn't it really being unfaithful when I start living them again? Not yearning for them, but just living out the guilt. That God has never called us to do that. He has never said, except that one. They're all forgiven. See, originally our debts before God were so great that we could never pay them. And our only hope was his kind of forgiveness. A forgiving God. 
So, one might ask, if that's the case, if I am totally and completely and forever forgiven and all my sins are somewhere that they can't really be found, why am I asking every day to forgive my debts? John chapter 13, it was part of the Last Supper. And Jesus uh, was uh, going about after the supper was over and washing his disciples' feet. Tradition in that day, and a very meaningful one, was that when you came into the house, um, there would be a bowl of water there and a towel, and um, usually a servant would come and wash your feet. And it was usually the child of a servant, which is okay. It's good to learn how to work. And... um, Apparently, that wasn't arranged ahead of time. So, all of the disciples came in. My guess is they probably could see the bowl. Had water in it. Towel there. But everybody just kind of passed it by. Huh, wonder who's going to wash today. And they're sitting at the table with dirty feet. Now, to put that in context, that would be like your children out in the mud playing. And they got it caked all over the lower parts of their trousers and, uh, and their shoes and all that kind of stuff and walking in the house and sitting at the dinner table with muddy shoes on. Same thing. Not many of us would put up with that. There might be a little bit of a try. I don't really feel like taking my shoes off, but they're probably not going to get away with it. For Grandpa, maybe, but probably not. And in my case... Grandpa, the grandchildren would be saying, Grandpa, you've got to take your shoes off. And then Peter, when it got to Peter's turn, he objected. Oh, wait a minute, you're not going to wash my feet. You're too good for that, the foot washing. And I'm not good enough. I mean, his, his thoughts, his intentions are good, right? I don't want you to wash my feet. I should have been doing yours. I am reading between the lines a little bit. And then Jesus said this amazing thing. If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. And Peter, being Peter, "Ah, then wash me all over, my head, my hands, the whole thing. Just pour the whole thing over the top of me. He didn't actually say that. And then Jesus went on to say, the one who has bathed, does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. He was talking about Judas. But Peter is clean. Why? Not because it wasn't about water. It was about Jesus and his relationship with him, how he believed in the forgiving God and his sins had been forgiven. This was kind of like a parable that Jesus was acting out to teach them a lesson, not that someone else should have done the foot washing, but to get to this moment where he's explaining to Peter, you believe in me, you're already clean, completely clean, completely forgiven, but your feet are dirty. Why? Walking around in a dusty world, feet get dirty, need to be cleaned. And it is the same for us. 
We believe in Jesus, completely clean, sins as far as the east is from the west. And yet, we're walking around in a really kind of a dirty place. It's called the world. And what doesn't show up as actual dirt on our feet or our shoes is what's going on inside of us, our souls. And some of that stuff rubs off on us. And those are the things that we need to say, forgive me. Forgive me. It isn't about my salvation. It is about my relationship with Jesus. It is about me confessing to him, I'm still not quite right. And I've got a long way to go, and I need to do this. I need to say it. You know, my wife loves me. I know that. She tells me all the time. And I also know that if I do or say something stupid, which never happens, well, there was that one time, or maybe a whole lot of times. But anyway, if I say something stupid, she's not going to stop loving me, but it will damage our relationship, especially if I don't say, will you forgive me? You see, forgiveness isn't just an obligation. Forgiveness is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for relationship. And that's what takes us to the next piece here. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Sounds like past tense. In the Greek, it really isn't. It's a very strange uh, verb, uh, tense. It's not really the tense, it's the... I can't remember what mood, I guess, is what it's called. Anyway, it doesn't really mean like I forgave them all yesterday. It means more like this, just as I forgive. The idea being that somebody might sin against me, and then I get to forgive. In uh, Ephesians chapter 4, it says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Uh, if that's going on among us, well, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Just like all the time. But then it says, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. See, it is the kind of forgiveness that when an opportunity to forgive occurs, somebody hurt my feelings, somebody offended me, cut me off in traffic, that's a hard one. Um... And, and I don't know if you have different hard ones, but there are some hard ones. Or in the case of what Peter asked in Matthew 18, Lord, uh, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? I think it was the, in the law, it was either three or four times was required. But beyond that, apparently, people translated that into, I don't have to forgive anymore. But Jesus' answer was not seven times, it's 70 times seven. Do the math, 490. Um, are any of us going to start making little hash marks on the people? Yep, sinned against me. Yep, another one. Oh man, you only got about 10 left, and then I don't have to forgive you anymore. That's not the point. The point is that forgiveness is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to maintain and develop relationships. I think about how often I commit the same 
kind of sin again and again and again. And not one time has God ever said, you're done. No more for you. This is about us forgiving each other. Another part of that passage in Matthew 18, it conveys the idea of what I call unilateral forgiveness, which means that I am called to forgive even if I haven't received an apology. Wow, is that hard. First time around, not so bad. Another time, eh. Get up to 490, it's getting really old now, right? And there are people out there that will never apologize. And I hate to say it, but it needs to be okay with us. Because forgiveness, even on the 490th time, is an opportunity, not a law. It's an opportunity to maintain a relationship whether somebody has asked for forgiveness or not. Sadly, this is one of those things that... Um, I find very difficult after about the seventh time, uh, and you probably do too. But this is a forever thing, and if I, I think if we see it as an opportunity for relationship, it will change our hearts about the gospel of forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father. Your forgiveness is so great, so complete. And you need to, to be true to your word, you forgive us again and again and again. Many times over, a whole lot more than 490 times. And Lord, I pray that you would put that spirit within us a spirit of forgiveness that does not count the wrongs. And every time wronged, Lord, let us be forgivers no matter when the apology might come, even if it's never. Lord, fill us with that spirit that differentiates you from everyone else. Let that become part of our character and let us become forgivers as well. Thank you in your great and wonderful word, Lord Jesus. Amen.